So, uh, one of our things that we are passionate about as a church is that we are not just a gathering of people, uh, we are disciple makers. Uh, this is intended to be a disciple making institution. Uh, this is a place where disciples are made, hopefully. Uh, that is reflected in our mission statement as a church. We uh, exist to help people glorify God by knowing God, finding freedom, discovering purpose, and make a difference. And so those are the four steps of discipleship that we speak of as in terms of like how we wrap our minds around what it looks like to make a disciple at Riverstone Chapel. And I say all of that because uh, this is a young man who uh, I've seen grow in all of those areas. And uh, he probably hates that I'm saying this about him right now because he doesn't like to be the center of attention. But I got the mic, so what are you going to do? Uh <laughs> From the very beginning of our church, uh, he walked in, and I've seen him grow as a disciple and a disciple maker, and he has a gift of communication and just a heart for Jesus that will come out in what he speaks this morning, and so I'm honored and privileged to be a part of his growth, um, and so, yeah, I'm really excited to hear Stephen Coggin teach the word this morning, so welcome him with a big round of applause. Yeah. Well, thank you, guys. I definitely feel the family connection, the love, and I appreciate it. And um, I just want to start by saying uh, we're going to be going through the parable of the lost sheep this morning. And before we dive into that, just uh, God really grew me and grew my faith, opened my eyes to more of his heart while I studied this passage. And I, if nothing else, I just hope that you're blessed in, the same, in a similar way, that you just uh, understand the heart of God better by the time we're finished in this very short study and that this very short study would uh, have a very long and lasting uh, impact in your life. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, Jared is, looks like he's handing them out here. So raise your hand if you don't have a Bible, everybody's going to want to follow along. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the parable, the story of the lost sheep. And I would bet that most of us in this room are familiar with that, that parable, that we've heard it before, and that certain things come to mind when we hear about the parable of the lost sheep. But just a heads up, this parable, and, and we're going we're gonna to take a look at this in depth, but the parable, the main point, the main focus isn't actually the lost sheep. The whole point of this story is to reveal the heart of God. So I just want you to keep that in mind, that, that understanding that that's really what we're going to be looking at and talking about today as we read through this parable of Jesus. So Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, Jesus says, or Jesus doesn't start off by saying, he's, he's not speaking quite yet, but it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so what is essential to understanding this passage is number one, understanding the, the crowd around him. Who are, the, who are the people around Jesus? Who is he speaking to? Because we can't really understand uh, what Jesus is saying and, and why he's saying it unless we understand who he's talking to. So Jesus is speaking to a mixed crowd of people. Luke identifies tax collectors and sinners and then the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, tax collectors, uh, that's just the, that was their occupation. They were employed by the Roman government to collect taxes from their fellow Jews and uh, turn them into the, the Roman authority who was uh, controlling the region. And so they were seen by their, their fellow Jews and especially the religious leaders as uh, traitors or um, certainly not pleasing to God, not God honoring Jews who cared for their, their, their neighbor. And then along with them, the religious leaders would have lumped in uh, all of the sinners, the people who were known to engage in immorality, the people who didn't seem to care whether or not their, their lifestyle pleased God. These were outcasts. These, these were outsiders. They were looked down upon. And this was also a culture that viewed much of the world in terms of cleanliness and purity on the one hand and defilement and dirtiness on the other hand. And so you have these religious leaders mixed with these sinners and tax collectors that they would have seen as uh, dirty, defiled, don't go near them, don't touch them. And they're appalled that Jesus would even receive them and eat with, with them. And so... You have the sinners and the tax collectors, and then you have the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day who were, uh, would have been very evidently different just by the way that they dress, by the way that they hold themselves, by the authority that they held in their society. These seemed to be upright, righteous, good men. That was the appearance. And, and the problem Actually, before I jump into the problem that the Pharisees had with Jesus, let's take a look at the behavior of the two groups. We have one, one part of the crowd drawing near to Jesus, trying to get closer, and why? In verse one, it says they were drawing near to hear him. The tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. They just wanted to get close enough to, to make sure that they didn't miss what this teacher was speaking. It was so intriguing to them, so enthralling that they didn't want to miss it. That was how they were behaving. That was, a, that was what we see them doing. But what are the, the religious leaders doing? They're grumbling. And they're not grumbling about the sinners. They're grumbling about Jesus. They're grumbling that Jesus would let these people that close to him. They're grumbling that somebody who claims to speak for God, represent God, live a godly and righteous life, somebody like that would even invite these types of people over to, to share a meal with him. And it's actually the Pharisees grumbling and that problem that they have with Jesus, that's actually why Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. It's in response to the Pharisees. Verse two, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So like that's the reason why we have the parable of the lost sheep is because of these religious leaders 
having this problem with Jesus in close community with sinners and tax collectors. Now, it's important to remember that this is a parable and that not everything means something, and we're not going to reverse engineer every single word to break out a comprehensive theology that would probably end up heretical or or have problems. That's not the point. That's not the point. We will get to the point. But one thing that is important to note as we start reading this parable, it's it's a pretty simple story. He tells them to imagine that, that they own 100 sheep. And one goes, one goes astray, one goes missing, and the 99, uh, who wouldn't leave those 99 in safety on the countryside to go find the one that's lost? And then when you find it, you're overjoyed, you're rejoicing, so much so that you invite your neighbors and your friends and your family to take part in, in that joy with you. That's, that's the, the simple story that he lays out. Now, I don't know how many shepherds we have in the room. I'm not one of them. Sheep aren't particularly important to me unless I'm playing a game of Catan. But I will tell you, uh, 99 out of 100 sounds pretty good, right? It wasn't that long ago that I was in school. And if I got 99 on a test, I felt pretty dang good about myself. Uh, Or if you had 100 bucks in your back pocket and a dollar bill fell out on the road, you wouldn't lose sleep over it. 99 out of 100 seems pretty good, right? Well, we could think of it in a couple different terms that might help us understand the same way that they would have understood it, how important this was. Uh, Imagine that you're in charge of a a car lot, an auto lot, and there's 100 brand new cars on a Friday as you leave work. You come back on Monday, and there's 99 shiny new cars. It's like, "Ah, it's, it's just one car, right? Well, if you're tasked with managing the lot, One car is a big deal. That's a problem. And all of a sudden, your focus shifts to a new mission. What happened? Where do we find the car? How do we get it back? One car is a big deal. 99% isn't going to cut it in that situation. So in terms of being employed or thinking of the job as a shepherd, 99 isn't going to cut it. You have a responsibility for each and every single sheep in that flock. And if if we shift gears and think not in terms of a job, but just emotionally... I mean, I don't know how many of you have kids here or have taken a group of kids on a field trip and you count them before they get in the van or then you count them when everybody's supposed to get out of the van and come home and one, two, three, five. Oh. We got to drive back. Seattle's a long way, but we got to go back. That happens. And missing one it's a big deal. And all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's not even about the job anymore. It's just the, the importance of that one lost kid uh, overwhelms you. And emotionally, it throws your heart into a fit, and you have to go find that lost kid. It's the same way with the sheep. There's both a, a duty and an emotional response of the shepherd that they, they have to leave the other 99 sheep that are in safety to go find this one lost sheep. The sheep who's alone, the sheep who could be eaten by a wolf, the sheep who honestly probably went off because he wasn't listening in the first place to the shepherd's voice and got himself into this mess. It's his own dang fault, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The shepherd has to go and find the lost sheep. Now, Jesus does something in this parable that's really interesting, and that's 
explaining the parable. He explains what it means. And we don't always see this with his parables. A a lot of times we'll read uh, Jesus telling a story, telling a parable, and that's it, case closed. And then after hours, people come up to him, hey, Jesus, what, what did you mean by that? Can you explain that to us? Explain that to us. Help us understand. But in this parable, Jesus tells us what this means right in verse 7. He says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So the whole point that Jesus is trying to make here is that in the same way that there is an insurmountable amount of joy in finding that lost sheep, there's that same type of joy in heaven, in the heart of God, when one person turns from their life of sin and just just turns to God in repentance. That there is joy in the recovery of that which was lost. That's the point. Now, Jesus also does something interesting, and he gives us kind of a switch, uh, uh, there's a switcheroo in here. First, he says, okay, imagine that you have a hundred sheep. You're the shepherd. You're the hero. You go out and find the lost sheep. And so we have the story that he's telling, but then we have the spiritual reality that he explains, the, the truth that the parable illustrates. Okay, are you following? There's, there's kind of a two parts to this. There's the story But then there's the the truth that he's trying to illustrate. And in the story, they're the hero finding the thing that's lost. But in the reality, it quickly becomes apparent, you're not the hero, you're not the thing that goes and finds what was lost. You're actually uh, the lost sheep. And so there's a reversal of roles there. And we're going to talk about why he does that in just a minute. We're going to go through that. But first, I just want to explain kind of what happened. So first we need to understand that his crowd would have understood, would, they would have understood the concept of God as our shepherd and people, humanity being like sheep. We have other passages in the Old Testament that, that certainly the religious leaders listening would have drawn to mind and would have been familiar with and they could see where this was going. In Psalm 23, David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then Psalm 119, verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And then the prophet Isaiah in chapter chapter 53 He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so in the parable, first he tells them, okay, imagine that you're the shepherd. And then he explains that, well, that that lost sheep is actually one lost sinner. And so all of the sinners in the crowd, immediately it clicks and they identify with that lost sheep. And whether or not they liked the title, whether or not they liked being called a sinner, um, Luke isn't passing judgment on them by calling them sinners in this text. It's simply that that was a label that everyone around them understood and would have, that's how they would have identified these people. 
And that crowd, they knew it. They knew that people looked at them as sinners. They knew that that was their title. They knew that that's how they were looked at. And so when Jesus explains that there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, immediately that crowd of people who are mixed with religious leaders who maybe their whole lives, they've heard from those religious leaders that there was nothing that they could do to please God that there was nothing that they could do that would bring joy to the heart of their father in heaven. Maybe that was the message that they had heard their whole life, that they were just outcasts, that they had screwed up, that it was too late, that they were too far gone, that they, they couldn't find a way to be good enough. And that if they did turn to God, they would just be met with disappointment or anger or indifference, maybe a God who wouldn't care about them, a God who wouldn't love them individually. And so what half of this mixed crowd is hearing is all of a sudden, oh, I get it. I'm not actually the shepherd in this story. I'm the sheep that was pursued. And if I repent, if I turn, if I turn to God, that will actually please God and it'll fill his heart with such joy. And I think that for at least part of the crowd, they couldn't help but feel an incredible amount of hope hearing that message, that God loves you, that God seeks after you, that he will go and find you, and that if you would simply turn to God, it would fill his heart with such joy, and you can take part of that same joy as well. So we have this We have this switch that happens. The sinners realize that they're actually the lost sheep. They're not the shepherd. And the Pharisees, well, by process of elimination, they also fit into that category of the lost sheep or they have no place in the story. Think about it. Again, the Pharisees, the leaders, they're not particularly fond of Jesus, but they're playing along. They put themselves in that role that, that they're imagining that they own 100 sheep and one goes astray and they go and they find it and they, they rejoice when they find it. And then, again, it becomes apparent, uh, 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 you're not actually the shepherd. God is the shepherd tending for his sheep who are his lost children. So the Pharisees get it. Okay, it clicks. So they're not the shepherd. They're not actually the heroes of the story. They certainly can't identify with the friends and the neighbors who come alongside the shepherd rejoicing that the sheep was lost. They're not those types of people. Why can't they be those people? Well, because they're, in the reality, those people are the sinners that are in their midst around them, pressing closer, trying to hear the voice of Jesus speak the heart of the Father. Are they rejoicing that those, those people are turning to, that they have a, a heart that desires to know God? Are they rejoicing that those people, that they, there might be hope for them to repent, to turn from their their lifestyle of sin and turn to God? No, they're not rejoicing. They, they take no part in that. And in fact, they have angry and bitter hearts about the whole thing. There's no rejoicing there. Well, why couldn't they, why couldn't they be one of the 99 sheep who, who were safe on the, on the hillside? Well, the way that I understand 
this passage and in studying it and reading about it is, you know, Jesus, Jesus finishes this parable by saying, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, does that actually mean that there are people who need no repentance? No. And I think that Jesus is just using that language as a, maybe it's ironic or maybe you could say it's a hypothetical, but the religious leaders would have known they, they, they might have behaved like they were above reproach. They might have behaved like they didn't need to repent or that their life was pleasing to God and that they didn't need to turn from their sin. They might have actually behaved like that. But intellectually, they knew the scriptures. They had studied the scriptures and they knew that there is none righteous, no, not one. And they knew that every man is actually in need of repentance, of turning from their sins, of atonement, and that we needed a savior. They knew that. And so when Jesus says, he, he, he gives us that category or, or that title, 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, to me, it, it, it reminds me of when the woman was caught in adultery and she's brought before Jesus and these people want to stone her and Jesus says, let you let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Is he saying that there's anyone there who actually has no sin? No, obviously not. And so if the Pharisees can't find themselves in any one of those characters, any part of the story, they realize that Jesus is actually calling them out and identifying them with the sinners and putting them in the same category. Sinners who, who need repentance and who, if they repent, will, will bring joy to the heart of God. Now, why does Jesus use this, this kind of switch where he tells people to imagine that they're the shepherd and then uh, in the, the reality that it represents, that's actually not their role. That's not, their, that's not where they fit into the story. Well, he's telling them, think of this from God's perspective. Put yourself in this set of shoes. Think about it this way, from, from a different perspective than your own. When do, we, when do we talk like that with people? When do we, we try to get someone to think like that? Is it when we're all on the same page? Or is it when somebody just doesn't get something? They don't see something the right way. They don't understand. They might be nodding their head and they might be doing the right things, but, but there's a wild disconnect somewhere. That's why Jesus is telling this parable. Jesus is telling this parable not just to let people know, hey, your father in heaven loves you and will pursue you no matter how far down this road you've gone. That's true, but that's not why he's telling this parable. He's telling this parable because he's in the midst of all of these people who completely miss the heart of God. They completely misunderstand the heart of God. They don't get it. They don't see how much God loves people. And that's what Jesus is addressing right here is the misunderstanding of the heart of God. And some people in the crowd, maybe they misunderstand the heart of God because they think that God wouldn't love them and that if they turn to God, there was nothing that they could do or offer that would please God. 
And maybe part of the crowd misunderstands the heart of God because they look over there at those dirty, rotten, filthy sinners and think there's nothing those people can do to please the heart of God. I think that both of those attitudes and both of those hearts were represented in the crowd and God is, Jesus is, is trying to get to that issue. He's trying to correct that. He's trying to show them so that they understand the heart of God. See, Jesus would say elsewhere, talking of the, the, the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So this passage is, it's about understanding the heart of God. It's about understanding the joy that he, the pleasure that he takes when we turn to him. And we would be foolish to think that that, that that joy wouldn't pass to us as well and that we wouldn't take joy in knowing God and in turning to God. I think most of us in this room are well aware, at least of the idea of God's limitless love, God's boundless grace, these attributes of God that, that we've heard about, whether or not we grew up in the church, I would bet some people have probably heard that type of stuff before, you know? God is love. God is gracious. God will forgive you. And there's this, there's this sense that all of these positive attributes of God, there's a sense that we might be able to understand it in a, in a small portion, but we could never fully comprehend the depth of his love, the depth of his grace, how much he has for us, how far it goes. But if that's true for God's love and his joy and his grace, what do you think that says about God's capacity for grief or a broken heart. See, God isn't just butting heads with the religious leaders. Jesus sees them as lost sheep who in their pride and in their arrogance have gone astray and they so miss the heart of God, they so miss the love of God, they just don't get it. But they think they get it. And he's just trying to wake them up and say, if you only knew, if you only knew these people that you look at with disdain, how much I care for them, and if you only saw how wretched your own heart is in your pride and in your arrogance, if you could only see the reality of the situation and how much I love each of you, how much I desire for each of you to turn from this because it's going to destroy you. You can't be the hero of the story. Take that burden off yourself. You're not the hero of the story. I believe that there is no one more misunderstood than God. Who, who here has been misunderstood by somebody? All of us, right? Yeah. It doesn't feel great, does it? And it hurts even more when you're misunderstood by somebody that you love, somebody you care about. And what if it's not just a trivial misunderstanding, but what if, they, what if somebody that you love, they think that you don't love them or that, that you're hateful? To be misunderstood in that way, it's not just an intellectual problem. 
It's a deep tear that you feel. And it hurts. And I believe that the heart of God is broken over sin in a way that we may never be able to understand. And it's not in a way like, like when our feelings are hurt that we have some problem, we, we, we have some self-esteem problem or an ego. God doesn't need us to love him so that he can stroke his ego or because he has poor self-esteem. But nonetheless, when people miss the heart of God and they, they don't understand his love, that can break God's heart. And we may have been misunderstood by, I mean, even, even if we add up all the people you know, I don't know how many people you know, 10, 20, hopefully more than 20, 500, 1,000, maybe you're super popular. You got 1,000 really close friends. God literally has billions of people on the planet today who misunderstand his heart, shake their finger at him with accusations that, that he doesn't understand the pain they're going through, that he doesn't understand how they've been wronged, that he doesn't understand that he must not love them, that he's not a loving God. Church, I just want this to be an encouragement to you that no matter where you fall in life right now, Maybe you have grown up your whole life hearing from the supposedly religious leaders that there's nothing you can do to please God, that that's for other people, that's for the people who haven't screwed up as much as you, that's for people who went to Bible college, that that's for people who went to church every Sunday, or, you know, you might fall into that camp where you've just had that, that sense that God's for other people. I don't think, I don't think God's for me, and and even if I, I thought about it or wanted it, I don't know if, if I'm for God. I don't know if he sees me that way or would, would, would want me. Maybe if I just turn to him, there'll just be more um, disappointment. Maybe he'll be disappointed in me. Maybe he'll be frustrated or angry. Or maybe he just is too big to see me and talk to me and care about me because there's so many other people around. If that's you or, or something that maybe you're inclined to think or believe, I just want you to understand that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of Jesus. And he doesn't just receive you and let you into his presence, but he goes after you. He seeks you, he finds you, he bears your burden. And he does that because he loves you not because he has to. And maybe you have turned to God in repentance and you are walking with our savior and you take joy and you take peace in relying on him. I know my struggle, honestly, is breaking away from the mindset that I just need to think about my spiritual growth. How am I growing spiritually? I can't forget that, but I also can't forget that there's a world full of lost people who don't know the heart of God and God desperately wants them to know his heart for them. So 
how can I help others grow spiritually? How can I help others know God and know God's heart? How can I help others find freedom? That's what we should, we should be thinking. That's where our mind and our heart should be at. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell everybody that you need to go quit your job, buy a ticket to some overseas country and become a missionary. I'm not going to tell you that you need to join some certain organization or that you need to pray X amount of hours per week. But I will tell you this, that it's important to God that you know his heart. So if I were to tell you to do anything and point my finger at you, um, I would just say, pray to know God's heart. Pray to know God's heart. That's certainly something I can say with confidence. I know God wants you to do. As far as the, what that looks like practically, I believe that God will be faithful to show that to you if you go to him diligently in prayer, asking God for his heart for the lost and asking for guidance and opportunities to, to be a part of this mission, to be a part of this message, to work alongside Christ in telling people about how much he loves them and the hope that is there for them if they would turn to God. The more that we understand God's heart for the lost, the more it grows our heart for the lost. And you will find those opportunities. You will find who God wants you to speak to. And I bet it wouldn't be hard for us to imagine people right now. People who we can go, oh yeah, They don't understand the love of God. They don't understand the love of Christ. They're missing it. There's a misunderstanding there. They don't get it. Pray for those people continually and share this with them. So I just hope that that blesses you this morning and that if nothing else, it's just just a a peek into the depth of love that God has for us and how important it is that, that you don't just come to church, that you don't just believe a certain thing, but that, that you're on the same page with God, that what matters to God matters to you. That's what happens when we, we become Christians, right? Our hearts, we start caring about the things that God cares about and that grows as we grow in Christ. And this is an area that that I would desire our church to grow in, that we would see more and more and more of God's heart for the lost and that we would be moved by that and that that would move us to action. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you seek us, that you save us, that you find us, Lord, when we've gone astray. We thank you, Lord, that you care enough about us to to come and share your heart with us. And Lord, I pray that every person uh, who who showed up this morning, they're not here by accident, Lord, but that you had had a message, Lord, that you want to speak to each and every one of us that would reveal your heart in a greater way. And I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted. We wouldn't take for granted the blessing and the privilege it is to see your heart, to see what you care about. And I pray that as we finish up the rest of our day and our weeks, Lord, that we would would turn toward you in repentance, God. 
we would realize that we can't be the hero, that we can't do things on our own, we can't fix ourselves, but that we have a God who loves us, who wants us to know him. And there's tremendous joy in doing that. And I pray that we would that we would share that, Lord, that we wouldn't keep that to ourselves, but that this message, this good news, and this joy would go forth all throughout Spokane. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing this last song. You know, we sing at the end, uh, not just because we're trying to like waste some time or like keep here longer, uh, but we believe not only worship, but the entirety of the Christian life is a response. So we respond to God and we respond to what he's done in our hearts through his word. So, uh, I, you know, we could spend an hour doing this, but we don't. We usually only spend one song, but it's meant for you to reflect on what you just heard. Uh, and I don't know about you, but that just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks when Stephen said, I believe God's misunderstood because I'm kind of a prideful human. Maybe some of you can relate. And I just usually assume that I always get it. Yeah, I got it figured out. Uh, but there's possibilities that there's people who came to church this morning who are misunderstanding the heart of God. And no matter how sure of yourself that you are when you walked in, uh, this might be a great time. Don't waste this opportunity to start with that prayer that Stephen said. God, do I misunderstand you? Are we speaking the same language? Are the things that are important to you important to me? And does my life reflect that? Uh, so, you know, we're only going to be here a couple more minutes. Just allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart right now. And maybe you don't even know what the Holy Spirit is. You're like, I don't know. I just came to church right now. Just what are you talking about? Ask that question from the Lord. He's listening. Do I understand you? Is there something that I, w I should understand more about you?